After several years of vacancy, the Merit Systems Protection Board has its full complement of three members, but only since June 1st. Members, after their Senate confirmations, faced a big backlog of thousands of appeals to decisions that had been made by administrative law judges. What's that been like? Joining me in studio, MSPB member Tristan Levitt. Mr. Levitt, good to have you in. Great to be here, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. And I think the most interesting fact of your newly established or reestablished career with the MSPB as a member is that you're working remotely. How does that happen? (laughs) Well, it's something that uh, my wife and I had talked about for some time. She's from Charleston, West Virginia, and we go out there all the time. So when the board didn't have a quorum, one of the things that the staff really had pushed was developing a way for board members to review and vote cases remotely. And so at first I said, ah, they're not going to need that. No one goes through this whole crazy process who doesn't want to come into the office. But once we tested the remote voting app and I thought, wow, you really could do this from anywhere. So I come in as needed. It's been fantastic. Given the fact that there are three members, there's no chance that you would miss the fact that five ballots came in. It's not like a state election for governor. There's only three of you, so it's easy to make sure that the vote is valid. Yeah, absolutely. There's a very fantastic uh, electronic app that, again, was pioneered by our staff, and it really makes it so easy. Before, it really was the case that every case had a whole paper file that got moved around, and now it all just moves seamlessly electronically. But a process question here, you all read the case, you read the background, you review what the ALJ decided and why. Before voting on either to uphold what the ALJ found or to reverse it in favor of whoever lost, do you discuss it among yourselves first? We don't. In fact, because of the Sunshine and Government Act, in order to discuss between the board members, you have to actually give public notice of a meeting. And so it's long been the case at MSPB that the board members will just consult with their own staff, but then they just cast their votes. And if there's back and forth that needs to happen, it happens through their chief counsels or just through written comments. So it's very formalized and process-oriented. It is, absolutely. I had this vision of the members sitting around stubbing out cigarettes and saying, well, wait a minute, he said in case ABC paragraph 5, oh, yeah, I missed that. Well, maybe you're right. That type of discussion doesn't happen. It hasn't so far. There's been some talk. Kathy uh, Harris, the new incoming chair, had talked about maybe doing more of those meetings, and we may yet. It's a little bit tricky because the cases are so, so, you know, legally specific, right? So the case precedent, the other things that we rely on don't necessarily lend themselves to a big back and forth conversation. You're really paying a lot of attention to the detail. And uh, that happens easiest with a written product right in front of you. And refresh for us the number of new cases that come before the ALJs and then on to the board each year on a normal year. A really technical distinction that we actually have administrative judges mostly, which are slightly different from administrative law judges. I mix that up with agencies over and over again. (laughs) It's not not a big deal. So we do use a couple of contract ALJs, but most of them are administrative judges, and they get about 5,000 cases a year. And they process that same number. And that work all happened while the board was without a quorum. So an immense number of cases still came out of the board. People could appeal those directly to federal court if they wanted, but those that chose to file what they call a petition for review before the board, those come. We had gotten up to the number of 36 143 that were the inventory awaiting board decision. Most of those already had draft decisions, which were uh, penned by staff. So it's really just a matter of, you know, all that work was happening at the agency without board members. Every office was kind of firing on all cylinders by and large. But now that we're here, that's the inventory that we had to go through. Right. So that would indicate then, given an absence of a board at all for several years, maybe a thousand of the 5,000 a year get appealed to the board. 
That's right. The numbers in the last decade or so have been about 900 a year. And so that really comes to our goals now with the quorum restored. Our goal is to decide 1,000 cases a year. During the absence of quorum, the numbers dropped. So it was really down to about 600 a year. Again, a variety of reasons people might say, I'm not going to wait in that line and do other things. So 600 a year that have been coming in, our goal is to decide 1,000 cases in this next fiscal year. And we hope that'll put us in a good place to increase from there as we tackle that backlog. And do you have a way of prioritizing getting through that backlog pile? Because some of them are routine. Occasionally, there is a precedential case that gets mixed in. What are those numbers like? How many of them are precedential each year? I don't know precisely, but it's significantly lower that are precedential. So, you know, maybe there's an average of 10 um, a month or so. A much larger number. We've been deciding about 70 to 80 a month altogether in these past few months. So the cases that we looked at first in restoring the quorum were really front-loaded with a lot of precedential decisions, some of which many cases relied on. So our pace was slower, frankly, at first because we were tackling some of those really thorny cases. But now that some of them are decided, that really gives guidance in a whole host of other cases. Yeah, you sort of unplug the drain, you might say. That's right. We're speaking with Tristan Levitt. He's a member of the Merit Systems Protection Board. All right, so let's summarize then. There were 3,600 backlog cases when the board started reconvening. Now, the three members were as of June 1st, but there was a quorum back in March. That's right. So what is your pace of getting through just the backlog, and what is your expected completion date of that? So, so far, it's been seven months, essentially, since uh, Ray and I were first confirmed. We've decided 511 cases. That's 73 per month. But again, that number's picked up pace. So in September, just ended here, we, we decided 96 cases altogether. And so my guess is that we will continue to increase that pace. I'm very confident we'll hit this 1,000 goal. I think it's clear that beyond this first year, we'll need to increase those goal numbers, right? So, so that's two, three years then. That's right, at minimum. And a really large variable is how many cases continue to come in. Will it stay at the 600 it's been without a quorum, or will it go up to the 900 it was historically? That will make a big difference. But after this first year, we'll have a really good base of data to draw from and saying, here's what we really need to do, and here's how we can project we'll finish up this backlog. Because I was reading about one case of a fired VA employee that went through the whole system, and he died between the time that the judge rendered the decision, and the board rendered its decision. And so win or lose, it's sort of moot. Which is very unfortunate. So, you know, the old saying is justice delayed is justice denied. And that goes both ways. That goes for agencies also that rightfully took an action and they're waiting for someone to say, well, you did the right thing here for them to be vindicated. But a real goal of ours also is to identify cases where change of circumstances really would make mediation a better circumstance. And so a death isn't necessarily one of those, but sometimes the laws change such that it really tilts the balance to one party or the other. And so we're actively looking out for those kinds of cases that we can say, why don't you go back to mediation? Because otherwise, it'll take time for us to decide. Some of those are even remands. They're cases that are six, seven years old, and the legally correct thing to do would be to remand it for additional fact-finding. That may not always make sense. You may say, let's just go back and figure out if there's a way to resolve this. Right. Speed is really an important component of the whole justice for a federal employee system, you might say. Absolutely. And are you able to detect, if it's detectable, any difference in the quality of types of cases that arose when there was not an MSPB? I don't know that I have seen anything in terms of that. There's without question a factor when the board isn't issuing guidance regularly. So an example we've pointed to often is the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act. 
a lot of AJs have been asked to make decisions there, frankly, the same decisions across our whole AJ court, about 65 administrative judges, without getting centralized guidance. So it's a lot more helpful if early on a board issues a decision says we're going to handle these this way rather than just looking at one's colleagues and saying, well, some are doing it this way, some are doing it that way. That's where centralized guidance from a board or even updating our regulations becomes really key. And we just couldn't do that with the lack of a quorum. Right. So there is some making up for lost time other than the backlog, just simply in the establishment of guidance for the judges to be able to use. Absolutely. It makes a big difference. And the other function of MSPB that people don't see as much is all of the research into different aspects of federal employment. Did that slow down and will the research return or what's the status of those different projects? It absolutely will return. The statute that gives MSPB the authority or even the mandate to conduct those studies was understood to require a quorum. So during that lack of board members, while I was there as the general counsel, we issued some kind of slim down reports, um, kind of special studies, but the hard hitting data and conclusions we felt needed to have a board to back it. But yesterday, actually, uh, we released our new research agenda for the next four years. It is chock full of very interesting studies that we aim to undertake. And uh, this is really a good time for it. These are some very, very timely areas. Yeah. What are the top three, say? Top three in terms of the specific studies would be a little bit harder to whittle down. I, Depending on who your audience is, you'll have folks that are interested in different things there. I would encourage people to go on the website and look at the press release we issued yesterday. But the categories they're in, one is defending merit, building an effective workforce, recruitment and hiring, pay and performance management, supervision and leadership, and then focus on OPM. And each of those has some reports that I think will be immensely useful that just haven't been either researched before or it's been quite some time since there's been data. Do you worry that the DEIA push by the administration, now it's coming down through OPM and agencies are waving this flag quite vigorously, could that conflict with merit principles? That's a very interesting question. Um, probably <laughs> probably different folks than myself are the best ones to answer it. But Key. it could result in cases that come to the Merit Systems Protection Board. That's quite possible. And of course, if that did, then I'd have to adjudicate those. So that adds a further level of caution to what I say here. Sure. You know, I will say, you know, merit has been a standard that has been applied, obviously, since 1883. And whatever we do as a government, I think it's important to recognize that, certainly at least in terms of hiring. There's been some interesting discussion as of late on the fact that it hasn't always been the same way on the back door, as they call it. But I think that's the key criteria that everyone should be focusing on. And what's your sense of any feedback or, I don't know, appreciation coming from the Hill? I mean, the Senate took forever to get around to confirming people. And it seems arcane, you know, in the grand scheme of things that the Senate does and the country worries about. But the Merit Systems Protection Board is kind of essential to Title V and the two point whatever million people that are under that system. You know, the numbers go up and down. So have they said, glad you're back? <laughs> I think confirming us was their way of saying glad to have a quorum there. We felt very encouraged by the folks in the Senate and in the House that have helped us get to this point of restoring a quorum. Clearly, there are both members and staffers that really, really understand the significance of this. And there's really robust debate going on in some related areas here right now. And so I think everybody recognizes this is significant. Two million employees is a really large number. And there are all sorts of debates that are maybe raging isn't the right word, but, you know, that are going on that I think require some really serious, thoughtful attention. And so MSPB is really kind of in the center of that in some ways, both 
both operationally, but in terms of these studies and other things. And so I think in terms of what we've heard from the Hill, they're very hungry for feedback from us on what really will work and how can we best have a, a system that will both serve the American public well and be efficient and effective. And there are only three of you. I mean, when there's 100 senators or 435 House members, they can all argue and fight with each other. When there's three of you, you all get along? Absolutely. We really do. And that's a real fantastic thing, even a blessing, I would say. we. I don't know that it's always long in the past that it's always been that way. Certainly the prior set of board members set a really great example there. But we get along very well. We have a weekly lunch together. Again, we can't talk cases during that time, but those relationships matter. They help to reinforce that each of us is coming at these things from a very good faith perspective. We may differ on views, but we want to get it right. And I think of the Merit Systems Protection Board as somehow more isolated from politics than, say, the Federal Labor Relations Authority. You know, the NLRB for the larger workforce of the United States, aside from the federal workforce, those are highly political appointees, FLRA often, not always, as they are to the NLRB. And so labor policy views on our labor unions, good or bad, this kind of thing, can come into those types of decisions. I see the MSPB as looking strictly at Title V law and therefore an easier and more objective North Star. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. And that makes for an easier job for us. Tristan Levitt is a member of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. 
You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.